All right, good morning. It's awesome to see all of you here today. Hopefully you're having a great summer. We certainly have great weather today. My name is Brent Fugate. I'm the senior pastor here at Byfield Parish Church. And it's just awesome, awesome for us to be gathered here worshiping today. A few months ago, my wife, Ayn, and I were watching the 1991 comedy, What About Bob, starring Bill Murray and Richard Dreyfuss. Who has seen What About Bob? We've got some What About Bob folks, okay. So uh, for those of you that haven't, uh, Bill Murray plays Bob, a patient with a long list of mental disorders. Bob goes from psychologist to psychologist to psychologist because none of them can deal with him for long, while Richard Dreyfus plays his most recent psychiatrist, Dr. Leo Marvin. Dr. Marvin is unbearably pretentious. At one point in the movie, Bob is trying to get Dr. Marvin to meet with him during the good doctor's vacation. And when Dr. Marvin refuses, Bob cries out, I want, I want, I want, I need, I need, I need. The difficulty in determining what is wanted versus what is needed is not limited to fictional characters that are struggling in life. We all struggle to discern what we want versus what we actually need. Do I want coffee or do I need it? What about that remodel I have been considering on my house, a new car, or a day of rest. Jesus knows what people want from him. He is also clear on what people need from him. He will give us what we need. He will not always give us what we want. Often our wants are mistaken. Whereas true needs are a result of the human condition. In today's verses, Jesus repudiates the wants that are brought to him. Instead, he makes clear he will give access to the mercy of God that is actually needed. He will do so through the cross. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. We will read verses 38 through 42. Those verses can be found on page 767 in the Pew Bible or read from the screen behind me. Matthew 12, verse 38 is where we will begin reading. Hear the word of the Lord. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, that's Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet 
Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Jesus defies human wants. In these verses, Jesus refuses to submit to the wants of the teachers of the law, the scribes, and the Pharisees. They say to Jesus, we wish to see a sign from you. We want to see a sign from you. They are looking for some act that will allow them to make a judgment about Jesus. They want to know whether or not he is on their side. To this point in the book of Matthew, Jesus has taught and performed a variety of miracles. The miracles that Jesus performed mostly happened when the people asking this question were absent. In the minds of those wanting a sign, Jesus' teaching is at best sketchy. He hasn't said anything outright blasphemous, but much of what he said sounds very suspicious to them. They are unsure what to do with Jesus. Notice they don't ask Jesus politely for a sign. They don't say, would you please do this for us? That is because in their own minds, they are the authority. They think Jesus needs their approval. They are the ones with status and power. If Jesus wants to avoid any bad outcomes for himself, he better get with their program. What those requesting a sign want is for Jesus to indicate that he recognizes their authority over him. In the geographic area in which Jesus ministered, there were various groups. We know a lot about the Pharisees and the Romans. There were also the Sadducees and the Samaritans. And within that society, these various groups all vied to gain more power for themselves. A precarious stability had developed over time. Each of these groups are looking to co-opt Jesus into their own group or clearly identify him as part of some enemy group. In their minds, Jesus could be useful. Sure, I mean, he's got some rough edges, but he really connects with the common people. 
The Pharisees and teachers of the law demand Jesus do a sign that makes clear Jesus is, that Jesus will kowtow to them. Doing so would be an act of submission to their authority. But Jesus will not submit to the wants of any group. The Pharisees and scribes thought they were the good guys. And every other group was the bad guys. They are not wrong about these other groups being problematic. The Romans were hedonistic and violent. The Sadducees, who are also Jews, didn't believe in the existence of God. The Samaritans don't even get them started on the Samaritans. Let's just say the Samaritans are morally reprehensible. They're also kind of trashy. Every faction is problematic in its own way. The Pharisees don't see what is so often hard for anyone operating inside of a group to see. They may be better in some ways than all the groups they compare themselves to, but in their focus on the threat posed by others, they are failing to see their own shortcomings. Many of you are aware that attend here routinely that myself and my family, we're big fans of the University of Tennessee. That's where I went to school. We primarily cheer for the football and men's basketball team, although I am happy to see Tennessee do well in any sport. If I heard that Tennessee won the men's diving championship, I would, I would feel a sense of pride. I wouldn't go to a meet or anything, but, but it, would, it would be nice to, to know that we were succeeding in some area. Now, historically, the biggest rival for the University of Tennessee is the University of Alabama. And I don't know many things in life, but I know that Alabama is bad, okay? I can feel it. I know it deep down in my soul. Their head coach, Nick Saban, is a truly unbearable person. He's arrogant. He complains. In my mind, whenever Alabama messes up, it is because they are irredeemably broken, okay? They have malicious intent. Whereas, I mean, when Tennessee messes up, it's just, it's just one person, or there was an accident, or there was a mistake, because Tennessee is good, because I'm a part of Tennessee. My Tennessee fandom and the Pharisees groupthink are both outworkings of an ingrained human tendency. Throughout history, whenever a group forms, it becomes hard for those within that group to see any good in their enemies or recognize any bad in themselves. When these tendencies go unchecked, it leads people to deify their own group as they demonize their opponents. The Pharisees and teachers of the law think Jesus needs to show that he is with their program because they are the good guys. If he is not with them, that means he is a bad guy. The only group that Jesus is a part of 
is the Trinity. And he, in his perfection, he will not fulfill the wants of any flawed groups. Every group made up of people has flaws. There is no exception. For the Pharisees, Jesus' refusal to cooperate with what they thought they needed from him meant Jesus was a threat. If he is not with them, he is against them. If he is against them, then he must be defeated. Jesus knows why the Pharisees and scribes want him to perform a sign. Bringing up Jonah is a rejection of their tribalistic thinking that underlies their wants. The prophet Jonah was not a hero in the Old Testament. He was not a good guy. Those who have grown up in the church often don't know this. There is familiarity with the first part of Jonah's story. Jonah was called by God to go to Nineveh, a faraway city, to warn them about God's impending judgment. He doesn't want to go. He runs the opposite direction. At a port city called Tarshish, he gets on a boat to cross the Mediterranean. God then sends a storm to keep the whole boat from sinking. Jonah has himself thrown into the sea. He gets swallowed by a great fish or whale sent by God that he survives in for three days before getting vomited out onto the shore. From there, he goes to Nineveh to do what God had instructed him to do in the first place. This common version of Jonah's story that Jesus is referencing is not the actual story of Jonah. Jonah didn't run away from Nineveh because he was scared. He ran away because he despised the Ninevites. He wanted God to rain down judgment on them. He only tells the sailors that his actions are the reason they are all dying at sea after any plausible deniability evaporates. Even after Jonah goes to Nineveh, he is still angry. He still wants God to judge the Ninevites. The book of Jonah ends with a lot of ambiguity between God and Jonah. God explains to Jonah why he is merciful to the Ninevites. But we never hear if Jonah comes to terms with God's mercy. Those Jesus is speaking to in Matthew were much more familiar with the story of Jonah. They would have resonated with his anti-Ninevite stance. Jonah despised Nineveh because it was the capital of the Assyrian Empire that had viciously attacked and conquered Israel. The Pharisees and other religious leaders demanding a sign from Jesus despised the Roman Empire for the same reason. They would have been sympathetic to Jonah's overall outlook. It was a perspective they shared. On the other hand, they were also aware 
of the judgment that Jonah himself had experienced. God was not pleased with Jonah when he ran away in his anger. Jonah getting swallowed by a whale was a terrifying form of judgment. It was a living death that God then freed Jonah from. If Jesus had associated himself with the wrath, both Jonah and the Pharisees felt toward the empires that ruled Israel, he actually would have aligned himself with the wants of those telling him they need a son. That's not what he does. Instead, he aligns himself with the judgment that Jonah experienced at God's hands. He says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, but Jonah's experience with the fish was bad, right? Yes, getting swallowed by a giant fish was not a reward. It was a temporary physical death. How is Jesus associating himself with one of the most terrifying examples of God's judgment in the whole Old Testament, a son? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they wouldn't have understood what Jesus meant. Even if they did, they would have had no idea what this sign was supposed to indicate. It's a mysterious sign. We can see what the Pharisees couldn't about the sign of Jonah Jesus foretells. We know what happens subsequently. The sign of Jesus, the sign of Jonah, excuse me, is pointing to Jesus on the cross. Jesus, like Jonah, is swallowed by a living death that is a consequence of sinful disobedience. After three days of that living death, Jesus is released from death, just as Jonah was. As miraculous and hard to imagine as the story of Jonah is, it still pales in comparison to the sign of Christ's crucifixion death and resurrection in addition to knowing how the sign of christ will manifest itself we know what that sign means what it indicates paul explains what the miracle of jesus three-day death means in first corinthians 15 3 and 4 he writes for I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. First Peter 2.24 sums up the necessity of the sign of the cross, stating, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. 2 Corinthians 2.21 tells us, For our sake, God made him to be sin, 
who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus defies the expectation of those wanting a sign that fits with their own groupthink by giving them the sign of the cross. The mercy God exhibited by Jesus on the cross doesn't make any more sense to the Pharisees and scribes than God's mercy to the people of Nineveh made to Jonah. In both cases, nobody could understand why God would be merciful. The people that have the opportunity to receive mercy are bad people. They are Ninevites, they are Romans, they are pagans. They deserve death. This is all true. None of the people being shown mercy by God back in Jonah's day or through the cross of Jesus Christ deserve it. They deserve death and destruction. The issue with the Pharisees and teachers of the law is not that they are wrong about others deserving mercy. Their problem is either that they don't think they need mercy or they think they have done something to deserve mercy. They think they are heroes. In fact, they are also villains. They focus so much on the shortcomings of other groups, they fail to see their own. God's mercy actually angers them. They want sinners to get what they deserve from God. What they fail to see is that they need mercy themselves as sinners. They are not in the righteous group they think they are in. They are in the group every human find, finds themselves in. They are in a group we call sinners. Instead of thanking the Lord that undeserved mercy is available, they reject it because they don't think they need it. It is not what they want. Tragically, the rejection of God's mercy will result in God's judgment. Jesus says the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. These pagans that the Pharisees and teachers of the law despise will judge those who reject what God has done. Jesus is greater than Jonah. He is greater than Solomon. The Ninevites and the Queen of the South responded to the mercy of God in their own day when they had the opportunity. Jesus is making clear that there is no greater mercy than himself. 
Any who reject that mercy will be judged. We must all recognize our need for the mercy of God exhibited on the cross of Christ. It is easy for us to think like the Pharisees. We see problems in all the other groups in our world. They are pagans and sinners. They despise the righteousness of God by their actions. All true. No argument here. We must not forget that apart from the mercy of Jesus Christ, we are all in the same boat. We all need the sign of the cross. It may not align with our wants. Our wants are mistaken. God does not give us what we want. Through Jesus Christ, he gives us what we need. Jesus will not always give us what we want. He knows our wants are often flawed, a product of our own sinful inclination and the groups we have been formed by. We want things that will not benefit us to the extent we think they will. He did not give the Pharisees and the scribes of the law what they wanted. He does offer, Jesus Christ does offer all that we need, which is the mercy of God manifest on the cross. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that we would remember our need for the mercy of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would remember that left to our own devices, we are unable to redeem ourselves, that, that no group we can be a part of can save us apart from Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Dear Lord, I pray that we would recognize our wants for what they are, potentially good things or sometimes bad things that may or may not be nice to have, Lord, but are not truly necessary. Pray that we would recognize our need for Jesus Christ, our need for the mercy of the cross. In Jesus' name.